Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court banned mandatory life sentences without a chance at parole for juvenile offenders. It said states needed to provide meaningful opportunity to get out of jail for once young offenders who demonstrate maturity and rehabilitation. Children who commit even heinous crimes are capable of change, the justices found. But for Missouri kids who'd been given life sentences, that ruling did not lead to big changes. The state did not order new sentencing hearings for them. It merely started giving them parole hearings. And in these hearings, they were not allowed to review information in their files, and counsel was not allowed to correct factual mistakes. The MacArthur Justice Center filed a class action lawsuit to change that in 2017, and on August 8th, it won a big victory. We want to hear from you in this hour. Should kids found guilty of serious crimes be given a second chance? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Joining me in studio to talk about the latest in this case is Amy Bryan, director of the MacArthur Justice Center. Amy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Earlier this month, U.S. District Court Judge Nanette Loffrey issued a major ruling in this case. What did she find? Well, this ruling was actually a follow-up on a decision from last year where Judge Lowry ruled that the policies and procedures of the Missouri Parole Board are unconstitutional as they relate to this class of juvenile offenders, that their rights were being systematically denied. And for some of those issues that you identified in the opening, failure to, to give them access to the materials and just basically from top to bottom the parole process for these formerly uh, young offenders. So she had found that this was unconstitutional and now more recently she outlined what has to be done about it. What is she saying that Missouri is going to have to do differently going forward? That's exactly right. So there are a number of changes that are required uh, of the parole board to make in her order. I believe about 23 of them. And they focus on increasing transparency and reliability of decisions. They increase or create training requirements for parole staff so that they are well equipped to make youth-based decisions in these cases. And they increase the, the inmates' rights during these hearings to have access to their parole file which they were previously denied, to have more folks in the room with them, to have an attorney present who can advocate for them, which was something that was previously denied to them. And then, uh, most importantly, perhaps, the board is not allowed to make decisions based solely on the seriousness of the offense in these cases. And when you say these are youth-based decisions, um, for an adult offender, they could still um, make determinations just based on how serious a crime was, but they can't do that for kids anymore. That's right. And that's because, as you mentioned, the 2012 case, but actually going back to 2005, the Supreme Court has said that children are different, which is a pretty intuitive principle, um, but has some very significant impacts legally. They're, they're different in ways that mitigate against the harshest punishments. And the court has said, the Supreme Court has said, that they must be given a meaningful and realistic opportunity for release based on demonstrated maturity and rehabilitation. So the question that the parole board has to consider in these cases is not, you know, do we need to punish them more, but are they ready for release? What do you think is going to be the biggest change? I mean, there's a whole laundry list of stuff that the judge outlined, but what sort of fundamentally shakes this system the way it used to stand? I'm hoping that the biggest change is a culture shift. And that's what really needs to happen here. And we can change what's what's required. We can have 60 days notice for hearings. We can give them access to parole files. But unless there's a shift in the you know, the mentality of the parole board members, those making these decisions, a whole lot might not change. Let's talk about some of the ways that parole hearings were previously stacked against these kids. Give us just a couple of examples. So the, these hearings are 
actually not conducted in front of the whole parole board. That might be misleading because they are parole hearings, but you only typically saw one board member on your hearing panel. Um, you weren't given access to your parole file, so you weren't able to see any of the evidence that was reviewed and considered by the, the panel in making their decision. The victims or victims representative could make a statement outside of your presence, and so you might never know that they said anything or what was said. So there were a lot of instances where there could be errors in the, the record that the inmate was never able to correct. Those are just sort of some of the, the highlights. And so the, it's a lot different than, say, getting your day in court where you're sitting there. You get to hear the testimony against you. You can object to it in certain ways. None of that. Night and day. And, you know, the Missouri Parole Board has historically been criticized as being very secretive. Again, hopefully that is changing, in part at least due to this ruling in this case. Um, but but historically they've been very secretive. So it's, it's night and day from what a, a sentencing hearing would be like in a court of law. And they weren't just secretive. They were also in the news um, a couple years back. Um, the judge kind of referenced this in her order. She said that multiple board members and parole staff recently have not only exhibited unprofessional behavior that suggests a lack of seriousness, but have also demonstrated a lack of familiarity with applicable regulations and the law. Let's talk about that lack of seriousness there. What is she referring to with that comment? Well, my, my best guess is she's referring to this scandal that actually the MacArthur Justice Center uncovered, um, wherein Don Ruziska, a former board member, and some other parole staff were playing literal word games during parole hearings, um, you know, trying to make inmates say certain words that were totally unrelated to their application for parole, um, and, and, you know, scoring points for getting them to say certain words like platypus um, or certain song lyrics. So literally playing games with people's future. So this is their one chance to sort of prove that they should get out of prison and instead the guy who's judging their fate is sitting there trying to trick them into saying platypus. Right. And that that's troubling. But what's also troubling. <laughs> that's very troubling. Yes, <laughs> is that, that it was covered up. Um, you know, it was not made public until we were able to get a copy of this invest inspector general's report through a sunshine request and then made it public. So it's, you know, again, I think that reflects the mentality that at least at the time the parole board had um, with regard to the hearings they were conducting, the decisions they were making for people's futures. Your clients in this case include 80 people. I know there were some named plaintiffs, but it also stood in for everybody who was sort of under the system. And all of them had petitioned for parole. What happened to them when they were there? Um, well, the named plaintiffs had their parole hearings, as did a number of other classmates, probably about three dozen at this point. <clears throat> and the vast majority of them have been denied. Um, and most of them were denied based solely on the seriousness of the offense. These are all first-degree murder cases, so they're all serious offenses. Um, but, you know, I sat in on a couple of these parole hearings and got to see firsthand what they were like. And they largely focus, if not exclusively focus, on a you know, detailed accounting of what happened at the crime, not what have you done in the 30 years since you were convicted, how have you matured over time, and how have you demonstrated that you're ready to be released into the community, which really should be the relevant question here. And that's exactly what the judge is saying, that going forward, they can't just look at the seriousness of the crime. Exactly. We're talking here with Amy Bryan of the MacArthur Justice Center. We invited a representative from the parole board to come on the show. They declined, but a spokesman gave us this statement. The department does not have any comment, but respects the judge's ruling and will comply with her directive. Um, you referenced that some of these cases, or many of these cases, were fairly heinous. Um, we have young people here who murdered people. Um, what does the science say about the rate of rehabilitation and recidivism in cases like that? Well, statistically speaking, this class of individuals is, is at the lowest risk 
to to reoffend or be reincarcerated because they were very young when they committed their crimes and also because they're serving very long-term sentences. And so really in most of these cases, it's a no-brainer to let them out. And in fact, the Supreme Court said that for all but the very rarest juvenile offender, a life without parole sentence is disproportionate and unconstitutional. So the, the majority of these individuals have demonstrated that they're ready for release and should be should be let out. What about the crime victims and their families? I mean, there's also people who have suffered terrible losses because of these kids. Um, will they still get a chance to testify at these parole board hearings? Yes. So the, the victims and victim representatives still have an opportunity to make a statement in support of release or, uh, you know, opposal to release at the parole hearings. The, the change in that regard is that the inmate is allowed to be aware of that statement and confront that statement to the hearing panel afterward should the victim choose to make the statement outside of their presence. So in other words, they're, they're given uh, notice and opportunity to, to rebut statements that are made. So St. Louis County prosecuting attorney, um, the, the former one, Robert McCullough, he has said that life without parole absolutely has to be an option. These are some very, very dangerous people. What do we know about public opinion on this issue? Well, I, I imagine they're not on your side. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's evolving. Um, you know, I think we can all agree that we are not the people who we were when we were 15 or 16 years old. Thank God. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think it's Brian Stevenson who said we're all more than our worst act. And these individuals, I wish that people could meet them if, if, you know, if they do in fact feel like lock them up and throw away the key. I wish they could meet some of our clients because they are amazing people, well-adjusted people who, despite the circumstances and despite where they've grown up behind bars, have made some really you know, have done some really wonderful things with their lives. They've worked in hospice. They've created videos to try to keep, you know, at-risk youth out of prison. Um, they've tutored and, uh, you know, mentored other inmates. They've really done uh, amazing things with their lives. Are there, Have victims' rights groups weighed in on this litigation at all? Not to my knowledge. I mean, certainly in individual cases, <clears throat> excuse me, there are, there are instances where victims have uh, vocalized opposition to release. But in terms of a friend of the court brief or anything in this case, they haven't tried to stop these reforms. Correct. Okay. So now that we have the judge's ruling, what happens next? Um, first of all, with the bigger litigation that we've got here, is it over? You're done? <laughs> well, it, there there is a deadline for the defendants to appeal the decision. Uh, hopefully they won't, and, and the, the statement you read maybe indicates perhaps they won't. Um, so they've got some time where they need to do training, and they've got to implement these new procedures, and then they also have to offer new hearings to those who have had hearings and been denied in the past. That should impact probably about three dozen individuals who should be getting new hearing dates for a proper consideration. And for these people who are getting hearing dates, um, will you and the MacArthur Justice Center continue to be involved, or is it time to, to pass this off to different lawyers? This is something, uh, this issue is something I really um, am personally invested in. It's something I've worked on for seven years now, and so have our colleagues on the case at Hush Blackwell. Um, so we're going to continue to stay in the fight. And, you know, obviously we can't represent everybody, um, but we are doing our best to try to find representation for folks at these parole hearings because it's our understanding that having a competent attorney in the room is really a critical factor to outcomes. We also um, actually just announced today that we're creating a fellowship, a two-year fellowship, to hire an attorney to further provide assistance to folks as they prepare for these hearings. So if somebody wants to get into this line of work, there's now an opportunity there. That's right. Just contact me. <laughs> and that was Amy Bryan, the director of the MacArthur Justice Center. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.